0: Hello and welcome. Today you'll be listening to Sarah Scott. Sarah was ordained in 2005. She went on to pastor at Bridgewater Baptist and serve in chaplaincy. Sarah shares how she approached differing opinions on the subject of women in ministry. She also talks about developing boundaries and how navigating motherhood shaped her call. My name is Sarah Scott. I was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia. My parents both attended Bedford Baptist Church, and so that's where I started life. Our family never moved, so I was consistently there all through my years of development, right up through supporting years of university and my time of calling. Bedford Baptist is known um, and very connected to Acadia Divinity College. Uh, We had two female summer students at Bedford during those years, Michelle Bland and Sherry Bushen, and they were dynamic and funny and fun, and these were in the early years of, like, grants, um, and they were just sort of the cream of the crop. They did discipleship classes, like, in their apartment, um, and they did, you know, mission trips, and they worked as the team uh, and really modeled women in ministry in those years for me. We always had, in my memory... Um, in leadership at that church, a male lead and a female lead. Kathy Neely was really through my childhood, and then Ida Armstrong Whitehouse was through my teen years right through university. So the title was often like Christian education pastor versus um, sort of associate or co-pastor. However, the role was respected to my eye and very much supported My faith was really developed through Christian camping, um, and I attended Bayside Camp every summer and then became a camp counselor and staff member. There weren't a lot of paid positions back then for camp, whereas now camp ministry has grown in professionalism. So when I first started, it was run mostly by volunteers, and so women made up a big chunk of that. So every week we would have a volunteer program director rather than one throughout the summer. The role of the highest authority, like in a camp structure. You know, because you needed the same number of women and men to counsel the kids, there's a natural equalness in the role and there was a natural weight of authority. Now, in the later years, typically the program director was always a man. Once, once that became a role that was hired... If I were to be asked at that time, who do I think would be more likely to be a candidate, like a successful candidate for a role, my, my guess even then would have been that um, Emile would be the better choice for that because then they could lead, you know, sort of both. So, so I think that there still was that uh, tipping uh, perspective there, that that was, that was sort of the higher authority. But really in day-to-day practice, it was, I felt, a very um, even opportunity I would be curious if I were to go back in history to take camp away from church, whether or not I would have stayed as closely connected to my faith because it was the camp ministry that really nurtured up my own personal identity. It wasn't until I was in university that I discovered that it was still a thing that um, women in ministry weren't accepted with holy quality. So I, I stayed connected through Christian camping all through university. And I did a university degree that was very general. It wasn't in a field that I thought I was going to pursue professionally. It was an expectation I needed to get a university degree in something. So once that degree was over, because I didn't have direction after my BA about what I wanted to do, I took a year off um, just to work. So I put my resume out generally. And where it got picked up was the Christian bookstore in Bears Lake. And it was really one of those serendipity moments. So I, all of a sudden, for the first time in my, you know, young adult life, I had time. I was working in a Christian bookstore, and we were encouraged to read the books that we were selling. And I was drawn to the theology books. Like, most people went to Christian living books, you know, like Max Lucado and all the popular artists. Um, but I wasn't really as interested in, in those themes In the theology section where nobody went down in that bookstore, it was very dusty, (laughs) there was all of these books that had topics that I never even considered were something that we could even talk about, like different views on heaven. It had never been presented to me through my culture growing up that there were a variety of opinions within the Christian community, which sounds ridiculous to me now, because I just see, oh, geez, there's so many different opinions within the Christian community. But at that time, that was revolutionary to me. So I opened up that section of theology, and it was just like, oh, it was like water in a desert. Like It was just so interesting and perspective and the thought and the philosophy. And during that time, because I was just working at a bookstore, I was able to volunteer. And where I was volunteering was in the church. So doing, you know, youth and drama ministry. So what I loved doing was working in the church. What I was reading about was theology. So my call to ministry, it wasn't so much that I wanted endpoint to work in a church. I really didn't. What I was interested in was the flow of inspiration, so I started at the Divinity School not to pursue a call to ministry. I started to answer a desire or a question for more information. All I wanted was to take a New Testament course and an Old Testament course, because I thought, I'm going to be Christian all of my life, and I, would, I just want to know more, because there's obviously more to be known. And that was exciting to me. So so my call to ministry was a very quiet, long thread that wasn't like, I want to do this job at all. It's, I want to pursue this idea. When I first contacted um, ADC, too, about taking courses, I was talking to the entrance person at the time, who was male, um, and he said, oh, you really have to understand that even with this degree, you'll never probably be a lead pastor uh, in a church, not in New Brunswick, maybe in Nova Scotia, Um, but you would be able to have a job as a pastor in a Christian education role or as an associate. And at the time, I was just like, that's fine, because I didn't want a job at a church at all. (laughs) I didn't hear that as a discouragement. I was like, whatever. <laughs> you know? uh, but I thought, that's a weird thing to say to someone, especially as somebody who's like the admissions, you know, like because I was expecting I was like, yeah, yeah, come. And especially coming from a background where it wasn't a question in my mind and it wasn't a question I was asking, but obviously it was a question that was present in the community at the time that I just wasn't paying attention to. I, in a very polite and, and supportive way. He was he was raising the possible limitations of the era. Uh, but looking back, I found I find that interesting because it's almost like it was a little snapshot of the era that I was entering into ministry into, where there was openness, but there was still a, a subtext and he was making he was making that subtext clear. There was a real rallying of support when I started um, at the Divinity School because there was already a culture of within my church community at Bedford Baptist. Um, Ida was the pastor at the time. She was just completing her doctoral work, which was really quite celebrated. We had had so many number of um, women who have gone through ordination through our church. So my pursuing studies was, it was just, it was as right as rain. The church um, supported and prayed for me and um, was very encouraging, opened up opportunities within the church to serve, to preach, um, and uh, it, was, it was easy. Uh, the, uh, the first resistance I heard about women in ministry was while I was a student. A younger student had come in who came from a more conservative background, came from a culture in New Brunswick that was was where this was a question that was much more in the forefront than it was for me. And so he raised the question with me, and I was, to be honest, I was quite shocked um, when I heard him say that he didn't agree about women in ministry, and he didn't do it in a, a way that w- w- was a jerk. I, I know him now, and, and he's, he's a really thoughtful uh, thoughtful person. He raised it as just, you know, this is a reality of, of his frame of, of thought, that this is something that he wonders about in questions. But I was, I, my jaw, my spiritual jaw hit the floor because up to that point, I honestly, I knew that there was um, resistance to women in ministry. I mean, I knew that it existed, but I thought it was like racism. Maybe not so much now, but in the day, in, in that time, racism, like I knew that it still existed, but I didn't think anybody would actually say, I think black people are less than white people. Like, I think white people are superior. I wouldn't think that anyone would actually say it, but I would, I could believe that they would believe it in their, or it might impact their decisions. So to hear somebody actually say, I don't think women should be in ministry, I think that that's against what God has designed for, for women or, or, you know, for the church. For me, for someone to say that out loud as as a belief that they actively held um, was shocking to me, and I... I remember getting very hot, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty level person um, until I get angry. <laughs> I can see everyone's point of view. I love everybody. Everybody loves me. Uh, until some bit of volcano triggers in, you know, and all of a sudden, the rage that bubbled up in my soul and, you know, the righteous indignation. And I feel like I might have laid on to this. Um, I feel bad now because I remember just being like, Ick. Excuse me! Like you are equating, you know, my personhood to being like, like what God doesn't want. Like, how could, you know, what? But I remember in in the days afterwards, he came back to me and he apologized, which you know, really speaks to who he is as a person. He said, "I recognize that this is the culture that I come from, and this is the structure that I come from." And he said, "I was wrong to have raised this with you in that way." Because my words don't have impact on me, but I realized that my words had impact on you. Like, because you have skin in the game. Like, the question to him was theoretical when he raised it. Like, oh, you know, like, uh, oh, I wonder about drinking um, and the Christian life. Like, should you or shouldn't you? Like, to him, it was a a theoretical question that he was wondering. I wonder about women in ministry. But he, he didn't realize that him wondering about it out loud to me said I think you might be going against God. He was apologizing for um, the way that he raised it and the impact on me. And I found that really, really uh, kind of a beautiful moment of then for me to be able to step back and say, you know, to appreciate that he was working through this. He wasn't working against me. I took my lead from my pastor, Ida, at Bedford in uh, more ways than I could count in ministry. But what I mirrored after that was ida went through life by simply doing ministry and doing what she was called to do so what i saw her and how i watched and how i heard from her was the role is to do what you're called to do and let other people figure it out so after that moment of sort of explosion i never pursued the question of women in ministry again I thought, how I will contribute to the work of women being equal in ministry is to be faithful to my calling. We had a number of students come through Bedford that had this disagreement, and what I heard from those students were, my mind was changed on Women on Ministry because I saw God working through Ida, and I couldn't counter the reality of what I saw of the fruit that was being produced through this ministry. And so I thought, oh, I can best serve the cause of advancing women in ministry by simply being a woman in ministry. So I didn't preach on it. I didn't teach on it. I didn't counter other people when they had differing opinions. Or I should say very few people are won over to a different position by words or, or, you know, biblical argument. What I saw was folks were changed by seeing the cause. I graduated like the top of my class with all of these honors. I was really doing well. And so then these churches started calling me because that's what they do, right? But I didn't want to accept any of them. I was like, how long do I have to talk to these churches before it's polite to say no? Uh, What I wanted to do was continue in Christian camping, that ministry. I went overseas to Iona. And it wasn't until I was out of the Divinity School and away from churches that I actually felt a call to come back. So I was in Scotland teaching rappelling and outdoor kayaking to kids. But I just, I wanted to go back to the church. I wanted to go back to the liturgy, to the music, to the, um, the teaching of the word. And that's when I received my call uh, into church ministry. And a church from Bridgewater Baptist reached out um, by email. It was just this one little one-liner. I didn't know anything about the church. I had gone through Bridgewater once, but I just knew that that was where I was going to go. So my call to ministry wasn't a call to a job at all. It was always pursuing the next portion of inspiration, and that's been true throughout my ministry. (laughs) One of the reasons I accepted that call was that it was only for one year. It was a maternity leave. I still have commitment issues. And as I said, I wasn't called to work in a church I didn't feel. So I thought, I could do a year, and then I have a way out. I like I have a door that I can say, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Goodbye. So I started there just as a year, and then I loved it. I loved it. I loved the people. I loved the role. Um, I flourished uh, there. And so then the next obvious step was internship for ordination. You know, that old analogy of standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before you really stands true for when I went through the examining council. I was very nervous going in. I mean, just like going into any exam. I, I really prepared for it. I was very aware of who I was as a person and my views and what questions they might ask. And I knew there were some topics that I was really hoping they weren't going to ask me on. But as far as the women in ministry, um, my vote was unanimous. And I know the women of the previous sort of generation, there is all of the stories of, oh, there's always one person who will vote no for a woman. There's always like one or two people that will always vote no, no matter how wonderful you are. My year was 100% support. That really speaks to the culture of the day um, that was really working hard on having opportunity on that council. Like There was an understanding that that was no longer uh, really reasonable to reject someone simply because they were uh, female. And the ordination service was beautiful. I loved creating that service with my leaders and, and my peers and the professors who had been influential to me in my journey were a part of it. And so that ordination service was a real celebration. The church just loved hosting that. My vote into that church was unanimous. Um, and I had far support, like, all across the congregation. It was just really lovely, beautiful support. But there were still people in that congregation that didn't believe women should be in ministry, and they would say to me, I don't believe God wants women in ministry, but I think you are the right person (laughs) to be (laughs) in ministry. And I was just like, how does that work in your mind? (laughs) Like, how 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 does that actually work in your head that God could be calling me to ministry but not women's ministry, because I, you know, like, but I would just walk by it. Like, I wouldn't engage with it. I'd be like, hmm, and I would think in my head, that must be confusing for you. (laughs) And I would just keep doing what I was called to do, and and the folks at Bridgewater really, really supported it. I never heard that pushback directly, um, really, in any tangible way. And my role changed and shifted over the years. I started as youth and young family. That was my title and then it shifted to associate pastor but i really did um the equal responsibility you know i preached and I, I taught sunday school you know i i did all of the same things as as the male lead my job was it was just slightly different when i was at bridgewater honestly i was like i thought i'm going to be here for the rest of my life like it was such a healthy church It was such a healthy deacons board. It was such a healthy Christian education board. The young families were, like, just so connected to my own heart. And I knew some of my colleagues and some of their difficulties in their churches and some of those church fights. And we we certainly had difficulties at Bridgewater. Contemporary worship was a real hot, contentious issue. But my co-pastor called me the Teflon pastor because, you know, nothing nothing really stuck to me. Like There was no conflicts uh, with me directly. So I was there for nine years. I was married during that time in 2008. And the switch to uh, Mary's life was quite easy and celebrated, especially because my husband worked in a church as well, a different church as a musician. When things switched, um, is really when exactly when the people in my congregation said it was switched, is when I was pregnant with my first child. I remember a congregation member saying to me, oh, you won't want to take care of our babies once you have one of your own. And, and she said it in a very loving, sort of joking way. I was like, oh, that's not true. But once our first was born, that maternity year, going into it, even before a baby arrived, was the first conflict I had with the church It was about taking, I mean, taking an eternity year, nobody could argue with because it's the law, right? There was a little bit of an undercurrent of tension because the women of the church who I worked so closely with as the youth and young family pastor, uh, the young mothers of the church, and they loved children so much that I feel like they felt a little bit of a mm, pull Because they wanted for me um, to be home with my baby, because that's what they wanted for them. But they also wanted me professionally to be at the church, you know, in the same way I had always been, because that's what served them better. But I recognized that they couldn't articulate that, because there's no way to articulate that without seeming, um, I think, what what they call cognitive dissonance. I was very strong, in my opinion, to take the full maternity year. And I also asked that the church would um, augment my salary, which is true in many professions, but not all. And I was surprised that there was some resistance economically, even though they would be saving money on the year that I was away because the person that they were going to have uh, replace me wasn't coming in as full-time. I was surprised that they wouldn't want to just uh, augment my maternity because maternity leave in the government is about half of your pay, which is a real struggle. So when I asked that to the church, that was the first time I received. A, a, you know, there was a pause before the yes, and even though it wasn't a no, in my own heart, I felt myself take one step back emotionally from the church. It's funny because it wasn't a it wasn't a rejection of that idea. But there was a question, and that question was enough for me to say, I don't know if this is a safe place to raise my children and work. Like, I don't know if if this place is, is going to foster what I need for the role that I was called into mother. And I did feel very called into motherhood. I really wanted to um, pursue that in the fullness of who I was. Like that That calling would have lasted for the whole of my life, that I wanted to have this motherhood experience. So... Um, that's when I felt a friction. The weekend that I returned to work full-time with babe at home um, was also the weekend that I found out that we were expecting our second baby. Uh, And this was a surprise baby um, coming so soon. I think it's called Irish Twins. So my first was just not quite one years old, uh, was still breastfeeding. I returned to work full-time, finding out that I was now in my first trimester of a second pregnancy and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, the church is going to kill me. Like, they were, I came back to work, and everyone's like, oh, we're so glad you're back. It was so hard while you were gone. Oh, we really missed you. And in my head, I'm like, I'm going to be gone in another six months. I was just like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> very bad. Like, the announcement for my first pregnancy was like, yay! But going into the second one, when I had to announce that to the congregation, like, I mean, I my, my, talk about my knees shaking in my boots. Um, and after I announced it, you know, I remember one woman at the door. She's like, "You know, this is something that should be celebrated. You don't have to apologize for having a second baby." And I was just like, "I know, I know, but uh, you know, I recognize that this impacts, you know, because it did impact them." So when I was on my second maternity leave, was when I recognized for me, and I, and this isn't true for all women, but it was true for me. Um, that analogy that I, I couldn't do both things at the same time. That six months that I was back to full time work with my first child was that's when I recognized every meeting happens at bedtime. I, I can't, I can't do it. I thought I could. I thought, oh, I'll start running things from my house and I'll start, you know, doing a baby group. You know, like, and this is just for me, not for all women in ministry. For me, I couldn't swing what I wanted in a calling to motherhood and what I wanted to do as a calling to um, pastoral ministry. Because even before our second child was born, I left about a month before I was ready to on on a note from my doctor because of stress. I I couldn't take going back to work after uh, in between. It was just too much physically to be carrying the second baby with a one-year-old at home. I lost my marbles because I wanted to be excellent in everything. I wanted I wanted to serve in excellence. Looking back, it makes me laugh because I think, oh, gee, that gal was trying way too hard at an impossible task. Uh, but at at the time, I thought, you know, I just wanted everyone to be happy, and, and nobody was happy. I looked online, um, and there was a position for chaplain here in the Valley in long-term care Um, And institutional ministry is very different than pastoral ministry because it's on the calendar. Like, you work from 8.30 until 4.30, and that's it. Like, when you go home, you go home. So it's funny because when I started clinical ministry and chaplaincy training, it wasn't until after I started the job that I recognized that actually that was my greatest calling. Um, It wasn't pastoral ministry. But I chose a job because it was most convenient, you know, for for my call to motherhood. So I really appreciate God's humor, and maybe this is how he needs to call me into things. It wasn't until I landed in the job that I discovered, oh, this is actually what I love to do. I love the personal connections, And, and for chaplaincy, it's all personal connections all day long. It's like where the rubber meets the road of all of these intimate moments, and I just loved it even more than my time um, in pastoral ministry. But it was really, that switch was um, rooted in motherhood, which is connected um, to w- women in ministry in a different way. Now, I've seen other women go through this in, in different ways, so I recognize that my experience does not um, necessarily typical of other people, and other folks um, certainly adapted in different ways and different strategies. But uh, And I think some of the young... Uh, pastors who are male um, have expressed navigating this in really interesting ways as well, and also that they are taking now paternity leave from their church ministry positions is a very interesting um, a shift in uh, in our church culture. So I would say for any any young family to know deeply what is yours to do uh, and establishing um, a boundary about what's yours to do and what's not yours to do when things were left totally open when i felt like i was responsible for all the things in all the places in all the families and in my own it it was um, very quickly the road to exhaustion but even now when i figure out for my work where is the boundary line of what's mine to do In this family because currently right now working with palliative care patients there's a lot of brokenness in families there's a lot of stress in families there's a lot of mental health issues but I'm very conscious of what's mine to do the idea that I cannot be all things to all people and still be me and the thing is is that God has called you and equipped you to do the things that is yours to do in my mind It's so easy to see folks as human beings and not have gender so far to the forefront. My view has always been, regardless of gender, what are you called to do? You know, whatever your hands find to do, do it. Often we talk about a call to ministry, um, which is like, I don't know if that's really how I would describe who I am as a person. But um, I love that this project is story-oriented and open-handed. It's just to hear. It's, It's to hear the collective story, and we gain such wisdom by hearing the collective story and people's experiences. I appreciate being asked. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your story with the project. If you're enjoying Called to Serve, please take a minute to rate and review the podcast and share the episode with others. You can follow Called to Serve on Facebook and Instagram and learn more about the project at calledtoserve.ca.